believe there's a, do you believe that your beliefs affect the way that you live, the decisions that you make? You're here this morning because of what you believe, right? And so, uh, for example, if you believe that this world is, is it, right? If, the, if you believe that there's nothing after this life, what do you choose to do with your life? Do you choose to be here today? Do you choose to give of your means? Do you choose, if you believe there's nothing after this life? If you believe there's nothing after this life, I think what you do is you decide whatever makes you happy for right now, right? Because after this is really nothing. I mean, you got to enjoy the best. you. And on top of that, you grasp at life, you know, because that's all you got. You grasp it with both hands and you don't let go no matter what, right? You fight because you know it, this is the end. On the other hand, if you believe that there's something after this life and that it is eternity, and that this life is just the journey to get there that affects the decisions that you make and even how you how you grasp your life doesn't it okay well at this point in the book of 1 Corinthians we've reached a place where Paul has been dealing with extensive division right and the problems that came about either as a result of the division or maybe they were there and they helped create the division i don't know but a lot of issues the church was dealing with. They had sin, open, blatant sin uh, in the congregation that they were just happy that, it, you know, that everybody was happy rather than dealing with it and saving a soul. They had, a, they had written him a bunch of questions that he deals with. And then in the last three chapters, what he's dealt with is the, the way that the miraculous gifts have either caused or at least perpetuated their continuous division in this congregation. So he listed them off and talked about how that God was the one that gave all of these gifts. And then he talked about their limited time frame. You know, they weren't going to last forever. There was something better coming, something that was completed, and that was God's revelation. And once it was completed, these temporary gifts weren't even going to be needed anymore. And so uh, he talked about that in chapter 13. And then in chapter 14, he talks about how they were abusing these gifts with a cultural situation that was occurring and the way it was impacting the church. Now, as you get to chapter 15, yeah, not always do I say, you know, there are times that I'll say these chapter breaks were in bad places because they cause us to not realize something is continuing thought. This one's in a good place because here in chapter 15, what Paul is going to do is he's going to deal with this belief that has crept into the church. It's an error is what it is. Uh, that has crept into the church, and the result of this error has caused people to... It's changed the way people live. It's changed what they, how they act and what impacts them and the decisions that they have made, and they don't understand the implications of what they believe. Never had that happen to you, right? You didn't want to get to the journey at the end of the road, but you didn't know the road you were traveling on actually went to that destination, is the idea. This belief led them to a destination that they didn't want to go to. It's not that they wanted to believe something that was wrong or error. They just didn't understand the implications of what they believed. So Paul's going to correct that in chapter 15. And let me say, I'm supposed to cover 15, 16, and part of Acts chapter, well, a great portion of Acts chapter 19 today. We're not going to do that. I'm going to summarize some of it. We're going to catch up today, and we'll be back, and we'll be on, on schedule Wednesday night. So let's start chapter 15, 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you're saved, if you hold fast the word that I've preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 
So he's going to define this now. He says, I preached the gospel to you. That's what you responded to. That's what saved you. Now let's explain it. For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. So he starts this chapter by saying this. You know where you came from, right? I showed up and I preached to you the gospel. And it was the gospel that set you free. It was the gospel that saved you. And you know what the gospel is. It is the fact, the historical fact, that God became flesh, came into this world, died, was buried, and resurrected. And he says, your, your eternity stands on that. Who you are stands on that fact. And, and it's not something, you know, even today, you look at it today, and, and this is what people will argue when they're uneducated on the topic. You didn't see him, did you? How do you know? I mean, you can say, well, there's an empty tomb. Where? Does anybody know where that tomb is? Oh, I know they have the tourist traps. You go to Israel, you can go to a place that they'll tell you is where he's buried. How do you know they didn't just make that up? How do you know which one he was in? So you're just guessing, right? No. See, that's the argument the uneducated make. But the evidence leads all the way back. There's a line of evidence, a succession, if you will, of evidence that's carried on. Not only by the fact that God's word is, it has proven to be true and tested to be true every single time so you can trust it. But beyond that, what Paul says here, not only was he resurrected, but people saw him. And not just the 12. You remember when Jesus was resurrected and those soldiers went back into the city and they're telling what's going on and they're afraid. And what did the authorities tell them to do? Go lie about it. What did they say to say? Yeah, go tell people you were asleep and the apostles came by or the disciples came by and stole his body away. And we'll protect you. The Romans won't get you. We'll, we'll protect you if you lie about this. So that, that's the rumor that's been going around. Well, these apostles went out and stole him. No, it's not just the 12 that saw him, was it? 500 even at one time. And a lot of them are still there, he says. You go talk to them. They saw him. No connection to say that, well, they're with the 12 and they, they perpetuate this because they want their power. That sounds like something the Pharisees would do, doesn't it? So... He was seen by these different men and women and the 500. And last of all, he even brings up himself. And he, he, I, I love the way he does it for two reasons. One is because earlier on the book, you saw them actually kind of degrading Paul, saying, you know, he's not like Peter or the other real apostles, right? He's kind of, so he even uses that and says, look, I was the last one to see him. I know, which, by the way, means he was the last one to become an apostle, doesn't it? So there hadn't been any sense, right? He was the last one to see him. But he also says, I'm the least. It's not just the way they look at him. It's the way he considers himself. You know why? Because he's the one that was trying to kill him when he did see him. He's trying to eliminate the others before he even becomes one of the apostles. And so he never, he never, he never gets over that. He never quits remembering that. 
keeping him going, motivating him even further. And so his, but his point here is, you know that who you are and the reason you're going through what you're going through, the reason you have hope for eternity is because you believe that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected, and the witnesses prove that. You see where he's talking? Now, why? Well, let's keep reading. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Don't misunderstand what he just said. They don't preach that Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead. That's not what he's telling them. But they are preaching, evidently, that there is no resurrection from the dead. So let's go back to where I started class. If you believed that after you died in this life there was nothing after that, would it change the way you lived? What he's saying to them now is, you know that you are who you are because you believe and have the witnesses, the evidence to prove it, that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. Why then are you teaching that there isn't a resurrection for you? That's his argument. Now let's see how he, how he makes it. 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, and your faith is also vain. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you're still in your sins, then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Here's his argument. You believe that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected. You also believe that once people die, they've just missed out. Those two things don't fit together. If there is no resurrection for those people who die, then that means the first resurrection didn't happen because the first resurrection is a promise of the second resurrection. And if the first resurrection didn't happen then you're wasting your time. You have no hope. And if, he says, if that's the condition, and that's the logical end of their argument, there's no resurrection of the dead, which then says Jesus didn't resurrect, which then says we have no hope beyond life, which then he says, if that's us, we're the most pitiable people in the world. I mean, think about it. We, we can argue it, and, and I do. Uh, I believe the Christian life's the better life, don't you? Okay, I believe that. But it's not just because it's the better life. It's because it offers me hope beyond here. <laughs> That's how we deal with the same things that everybody else deals with and makes it, that makes it better, right? You think the Christian dealing with, you know, a diagnosis from the doctor that's terminal? Is it any different for the Christian than it is for anybody else? It's still a terminal diagnosis, right? It's not going to be better for you, is it? So what makes it different? It's only terminal for the temporary. Because the eternal is going somewhere else, right? Okay, but how about this? How about it, it, is the Christian life easy? Are there times that, you know, it would be easier to just give it all up? Temporarily? So if you discipline yourself, if you restrict yourself, if you serve all the things that are involved with Christianity, and there isn't anything beyond the grave, what have you gained? Might as well just have all the things that you've missed out on, right? 
That's his argument. Keep reading. He's got more evidence. Verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or died. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming, and comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. For he must reign till he has put all the enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So his argument now is, if if what happened with Jesus was a reconciling of something that was messed up before, and it's called a first fruit, then you know that others have to follow, Right? And so you look back and you recognize that what happened with Adam is, because of sin in this world, our world was cast to a place that Romans chapter 8 and verse 20 calls uh, decay and corruption. It's death. Our world is dying. Everything in our world is dying. But what happened with Jesus is he overcame what Adam created. What happened with Adam, what started with him, was overcome by Jesus. And so the first fruits, what he overcame, means there's a second fruit, and others are going to overcome it because of him. Okay, but then he goes further. I mean, look at how he describes it there. He talks about this enemy. Actually, let me, let me just highlight it this way. You know, there are a whole lot of people in our world today who believe that the kingdom's not here. They believe that Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God, but the Jews rejected him, and so he, didn't, he wasn't able to do it. He set up the church instead. Notice what he said in this text. Evidence of the fact that there is a resurrection of the dead is that Jesus is reigning over his kingdom now, and he's going to reign over that kingdom until the last enemy is overcome, and then he's going to give that kingdom to God and submit himself in his role for eternity. That's what we just read. Well, how's he going to give something to him that doesn't exist? does exist doesn't it how is he reigning over something that doesn't exist it does exist so the fact that they are in his kingdom is evidence not only of his resurrection but here's why he's talking about all this to them of their resurrection these people that have died this is what's become so discouraging to them they've had people that have died and as a consequence of that, I mean, they're waiting for the return of, of their king, of Jesus, and these people have died, and so they're saying, well, that's so sad, they missed out. He's going to come back, and they just kind of missed out. Well, here's, here's how, how far this goes with consequences. What happens if you get arrested for your faith? What happens? What happens today, in our world today, if uh, a terrorist, like what happened yesterday, what happens if, in our world today, a terrorist shows up, and because of your faith, they take your life. What happens? Do they win? See, that's what our world misses. Uh, I'm, I'm not only sad, but angry about some of the things that are happening in our society. But what Christians have to recognize is, as bad as it can get, they can't win. They cannot win. As long as I don't give up my faith, they cannot win. I win. They just make it easier for it to happen, I guess. But the point he's making here is, 
why would you do that? Why would you sacrifice yourself in that way and not just give up your faith if the, the fact that you died doing it meant you lost? That Would that change your perspective on death if it meant you lost? It's not a victory, right? It would change it, wouldn't it? And that's what they're struggling with. You see how, this, see how the consequences of what you believe really affects where you end up? I mean, this is really simple. It's not that they believe that Jesus isn't the Christ. They believe that. It's not that they don't believe that he died on the cross. They believe that. It's not that they don't believe that he resurrected from the grave. They believe that. What they don't believe is that people who have died are going to be resurrected again. And so Paul is taking them to the place where if that's what you believe, then you have to deny all the rest of it that God caused to happen to get there. Okay, let's keep going. This, this must have been serious with them because he just... He just keeps going with it. 29. Otherwise, what would they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. Even the manner of men, I have fought with beasts at Ephesus. What advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let us eat, drink, and let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Now I want to start with this. There is a belief system in the religious world today that you can pray for the dead. And this is where it comes from. You know, that if you have some loved one who was, you know, a wicked person. Well, they don't have to be wicked. They just have, if they're not a Christian and they pass into eternity, then you can, actually it's become a, you can pay somebody (laughs) And somebody will pray for your loved one who has died, and they will pray them out of this temporary place of, of punishment. Uh, well, that's not taught anywhere in the Bible. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's saying here is, if you believe, this, listen to his context. If you believe that people die and they don't resurrect, the consequence of that is Jesus didn't die and resurrect because he's the first fruits, right? And if Jesus didn't die and resurrect, we're living pitiable lives because he, we have no hope because he didn't conquer the grave. And if that's the case, why then are you baptizing people into a Christ who didn't resurrect? If obedience to the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus reenacted through immersion in water, and he didn't resurrect, why do it? What point is it? That's his argument. Why, why, were you, why are you baptizing people into somebody who's dead? Now, you know, his point is he's not dead, right? He's just taking them to the logical conclusion of their belief system. So he says, why would you? And on top of that, why would you live the way that you live? Why would you struggle and suffer like we talked about a while ago? And he talks about Ephesus. And by the way, that's the part of Acts that we were supposed to study today that we won't get to. So you can read it at home if you have your schedule. Paul was in Ephesus. And Ephesus just happened to be a place where it was huge pagan worship diana of the ephesians was there and supposedly that this image of diana had been cast down by zeus to the earth to, and the ephesians were the guardian of her temple and and all this worship for her and and there's demetrius who conveniently is making a whole lot of money off of these idols that he's making and so when it starts hitting your wallet you start having a problem right so he creates this huge uproar and there are a lot of threats and there's a riot. And even it gets so bad that they, they're afraid the Romans are going to step in and handle this because of the uproar in Ephesus. Paul's saying, look, if there's no resurrection of the dead, meaning Jesus didn't resurrect from the dead, why in the world are we baptizing people and why in the world are we putting our life on the line? 
You don't put your life on the line for something that's imaginary, do you? No. So they have to trust in the fact that, that God has provided them the evidence that there's hope beyond here. That's why you continue to walk. That's why you act the way that you act. So, And by the way, verse 33. Uh, Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. We use that all the time, especially parents with our kids, right? Be careful who your friends are because you're hanging out with your friends and they could get you to do things or tempt you to do things or peer pressure kind of stuff, right? Okay, look at the context he's talking about. Error. He's talking about religious error. And he's saying you better be careful the people that you're that are around you because it'll weaken you. It'll change what you believe. I remember, and I think I've told you this before. I know I've told you part of it, but uh, there was a time early on in our marriage where we were attending a congregation that in five years never had a Bible class. Five years, we never had a single Bible class. We had classes, uh, but we talked about money and we talked about marriage and we talked about raising children and stuff like that. And there's nothing wrong with those topics. They're good topics that need to be studied. But in five years, you ought to study the Bible somewhere, hadn't you? Okay, you know what happened at the end of those five years? We didn't believe the same things we believed at the beginning. And it wasn't because, or maybe I should say, I wasn't as strong on things as I was at the beginning. And it wasn't because anything was taught there that was wrong. It's that over a period of time, the influence of the people around you starts to affect you. And if the people around you are not spending any time in the Bible... Well, you're not going to either, are you? What changes is when you, your influence is what is grounded in truth. So you spend your time around people in there. You say, well, uh, all of your time, I'm not saying you shouldn't influence the world. That's a different topic. You should be around people that are lost to try to encourage them, teach them, strengthen them, be the example. You should be that. But when you don't have a foundation at some point, what ends up happening is your ship drifts. So he says you've got to be careful because... The, the church is supposed to be the place that pulls you back, right? And if the error is in the church, what hope do you have? All right, keep going. 35. Now, they, now he's going to anticipate their arguments. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Isn't that what we do? We're finite. We don't understand the infinite. And so we say, I don't think that's possible. Remember the woman at the well Jesus is speaking to and she's, uh, her argument is, you know, your fathers say we ought to worship there and our fathers say we ought to worship there and we don't understand it. And, and remember, it was after that that there were others who came up and say, you know, there's this woman that's married this time and this woman's married this time and, and all these people died and who's, whose who's going to be your husband in eternity? These people are asking the same thing and that's, that thing is, I don't understand what you're saying and since I don't understand it, it can't be true. Nobody ever does that today, do we? I don't understand how God can know all things at all times. I don't. I don't understand how God can be everywhere all the time. I don't understand how God's providence works. All right? Does that mean none of those things happen just because I don't understand them? Keep reading. How are the dead raised up? Foolish one, 36. What you sow is not made alive until it dies. And what you sow, you don't sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. All flesh is not the same flesh, 
But there's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fish, another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies. But the glory of the celestial is one and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. For one star differs from another in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It's raised in incorruption. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So it's written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. Afterward, the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. So here's his argument. You might not understand the infinite, but God has shown us evidence to, to, help, us, uh, to help us grasp it a little bit. All right? I may not understand. I'll, I'll give you an example before I talk about his. I may not understand heaven. Here's what I know about it. It's not a place that's physical, right? So when I hear God talk about you know, the street of gold and the crystal river and all that stuff, I know that there isn't a literal crystal river there and there's not a literal street of gold there because those are physical elements that don't exist in eternity, right? I get that. So the point I'm getting from him describing it that way is so that I take something finite and grasp it to understand the value and the purity of heaven, the glory of heaven. So here he says, you, you may not grasp what this resurrection of the dead means. How does it happen? Because you haven't seen it, but you have seen it. You plant the seed. Do you plant the seed and you get the same seed back? Or do you get a plant? You get a plant. So you put the seed in the ground that, that dies and, and becomes alive again. Look at the trees. Now, I know we don't get this down here, although today was an incredible morning. Don't you agree? Yeah. Well, up north, you know what happens when they start getting weather like this? The leaves die, don't they? And the grass dies. But guess what? Next spring, it's going to all come back and produce all that pollen that gives me all those allergies. He says that's, that's evidence of God's power even over death. So trust, he says, in fact, they're not even the same. We, we have a problem with that. How, I don't understand the resurrection. Or am I going to be stuck with this body for all eternity? And am I going to have these limitations for all eternity? You don't get it, he says. It's not the same body. Something that, what's, what's sown is, is physical. And that's what we got when we were descended from Adam because he was taken from dust and he became a living soul. But the living soul is spiritual. So what? resurrects is spiritual that doesn't mean there's not a physical resurrection it means there's a change it means there's a change because the physical is not going to be eternal he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of god that doesn't mean you physically are not here as a part of the kingdom of god it means the part that is a part of the kingdom of god is your eternal part not your body keep reading behold i tell you a mystery we shall, by the way, you know what a mystery is, by definition? Something hidden that is being revealed. Something that you don't know that's being revealed. So he says, I'm going to tell you what you don't know. Okay? I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. 
in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall we brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So he says, look, we are... Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, there's going to be people here. Not everybody's going to die. But it doesn't matter whether you've died before he comes back or you're alive. When he comes back, you're going to change. Because flesh and blood doesn't inherit eternity. So he says, we've got to trust in the fact that God knows what he's doing. And we've got to serve him. And we've got to follow through. And by the way, connecting back to what he said a while ago about that last enemy that's going to be put under his feet. And that's when... He turns the kingdom over to God and is no longer serving his king on his throne. He says when that happens is when all this is done away with. And then he says that connecting word, therefore, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. You know why he puts that there? Again, that's a verse that we don't use it wrong, I, I don't guess. We, we talk about you know, continuing on and all that to use it. But if you keep it in its context and you realize what he's saying, life's worth it. It's not just... There's nothing after this, so give up. You don't ever feel like giving up, do you? Yeah. You don't ever get tired, do you? You don't ever wonder if it'd just be easier just to float. He says, don't. Because there is a resurrection of the dead, because Jesus did resurrect, which means there's a resurrection of the dead for us. We're all going to be changed. We're all going to be able to overcome this last enemy because he overcame it, and there is an eternity. So keep going. Don't give up. All right. Chapter 16. Concerning the collection for the saints, as I've given orders to the churches of Galatia, so you must do also. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay aside, lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collection when I come. And when I come, whoever you approve by your letters, I will send to bear your gift to Jerusalem. But if it's fitting that I go also, they will go with me. So because of the problems that are happening in Jerusalem, the oppression, the, the, the difficulties with their continued livelihood and and even weather situations and stuff like that they want to help these people are going to send some funding back to help their brethren in the area of judea and so paul says look here's how that happens nobody really let me let me let me uh, let me apply it to us first let's say that everybody here let's say makes a plan right uh, i know i'm being optimistic but let's say everybody makes a plan and we figure out how next year is going to go for us. I'm going to have this kind of expenses in my house. And, you know, this is my car payment. This is what our insurance is. And, and this is what I'm going to give to God next year. All year long, I'm going to give this to God. How easy would it be to do it all January 1st? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, for most of us, it'd be impossible. Not just a challenge. For most of us, it'd be impossible, right? I mean, you might could do it, but how are you going to eat tomorrow, right? And so what Paul says is you really want to do something good, but it would really be hard for you just to go and do it. So every first day of the week, which, by the way, is when they're supposed to be getting together, isn't it? 
Every first day of the week, you're getting together to worship, and you're getting together to take the Lord's Supper. So let's do this. Every first day of the week, when you gather together, put a little bit aside. Put a little bit aside, and then when I show up, we won't have to go around trying to figure all this out, because everything will be there, and whoever you select to go take it back, we'll send it with them. And if you need me to go with them, I'll go with them too. That's an example, and why it is the case that we support the work of the church the way that we do. The first day of the week with free will offerings. Because God has prospered us, and so he says, give as you have been prospered here. And there are other passages that talk about this clearly, but the example that they use is what we're, is, is our example, one of our examples. So he says, as he has prospered you during this time frame, set it aside. And as he prospers you in another time frame, set it aside. Because what happens if you don't is you can't do what you're committed to doing. Keep reading. Now I'll come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. But it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. So he says, I'm going to come see you and I may be there for a while so that you can support me and send me somewhere else. Verse 7. For I do not wish to see you now on the way. Hope to stay with you a while if the Lord permits. But I'll tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. Again, I connect back to what I told you all ago about Diana of the Ephesians and the problems there. Paul didn't see that as a, as a problem. He saw it as an opportunity. More lost people, more people to teach, isn't it? Now, if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear, for he does the work of the Lord as I also do. And therefore, let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace that he may come to me, for I'm waiting for him with the brethren. Concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. I, I love the fact that that's there because, you know back in First Corinthians 13 when I talked about how easy it is for us to assume bad motives on each other? You know, somebody doesn't shake my hand, and so I say, well, they're mad at me. Maybe not. Maybe they got distracted. Maybe they're sick today and they didn't want to give you their germs. Who knows what it is? Why do we immediately go to the negative? So what Paul says here is, look, I tried to get Apollos to go. He didn't go. But you know what? He's going to when he has opportunity. Why, why impugn him because of that? Did he have to go? 13. Watch. Stand fast in the faith. Be brave. Be strong. Let all that you do be done with love. I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that it's the first fruits of Achaia, and that they've devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints, that you also submit the stuff to such. Let me, let me just stop there. I'm out of time, so let me just summarize this. Uh, here, here's what he says. If all the things that I've taught you is true, watch. Now, watch what? Well, watch because the Lord's going to come back, right? Uh, watch because error leads you to a place that you don't want to be. Watch because you have sin in the congregation that's affecting you and and you're not uh, who you ought to be as a church. Watch because you're divided over your miraculous gifts and abusing them and not using them in the way that God has given them. Watch because God has delivered his word in a way that he spoke the words and you listen to his words, not what somebody else said about it. Watch because you might be distracted by preacheritis. You see how this connects back to everything that he said? In other words, you ought to always be watching. You ought to always be concerned about the eternal destiny of your soul, my soul, and everybody else's soul around you, right? Because we're, we're in this journey together, which is the point of this book. Okay.
Obviously, I didn't get through this. I didn't get into Acts chapter 19, but I did summarize it. So we'll pick up Wednesday night on schedule, uh, starting the book of 2 Corinthians. Let's close with a prayer. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunity to be here this morning. And we're thankful, Father, for this letter that was written to the church in Corinth that has so many, uh, so many things to say to us today and so many applications. We pray, Father, that we will be the united family that you desire for us to be that we will stand strong on the victory of, over death that your son gave to us and that we will never give up on this journey. Help us always to honor and glorify you and not ourselves. Forgive us where we fail you. In Christ's name, amen.